welcome to Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus, and I was delighted to interview Stephen Dubner, who is just a really thoughtful, sweet human being and um, also ends up educating all of us who are post-grads, sort of before you start going to those boat cruises and lecture series uh, at your local community center. Um, Pre that and post-college and grad school, there's a time where it's uh, learning is is not... uh, thrown at you. You have to really seek it out. And what's nice about Freakonomics is they delve into a lots of subjects that are interesting, things you might not have thought about, things that you do, and tackle them. So it was a joy to have on uh, the co-creator of that phenomenal enterprise, Freakonomics. And also he's just, he's just, he's a good egg, local and organic. Uh, without further ado, here's my interview that was taped live at UCB with Mr. Stephen Dubner. like to uh, speed along to our next guest because we have so many interesting people tonight. This is, has this been interesting, illuminating, thoughtful? Um, our next guest is a, a personal hero because he is so funny in addition to being a, a brilliant writer. Um, he has written a book that hasn't really gotten a lot of press, so I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it, uh, Freakonomics. Uh, He's also the author of Super Freakonomics, and Super Duper Freakonomics has not come out yet. Um, And he also has other books, including Confessions of a Hero Worshipper, as well as what I just read, which I can't... uh, endorse enough choosing my religion i'm just proud that i've been doing a lot of reading but choosing my religion is a fantastic book as well um and he's also had a kid's book please welcome the one and only stephen dubner is it cold in here oh thank you so much that was really sweet I can give you my parents' emails just to encourage them to do the same. This, oh, it's so funny when you get gifts that are just promotional material. <laughs> feels so personal. Thank you for thinking of me. You're welcome. It's a good start. Yeah. So, Stephen. Yes. No. <laughs> uh, sorry. No, that, are, are you really Sorry. I'm not sorry. Okay, that's what I was thinking, and nor should you be. Um, I wouldn't have known about you had I not had I not read Freakonomics, right? So yeah, it's, fa- it's I don't know. I can't answer that question. I I can't answer the question of whether you would not have known about me. That's true. That's a question for you to answer. That is. That right. is. Now, but I, since you said it, I believe it. Okay, it's true. Um, you have also grew up with humble beginnings. You are the not as humble as those. <laughs> <laughs> uh, seriously, that is amazing. That is am- that was it. Does put your story. life into perspective does, to to learn about what people have been through and then what they have accomplished. And I do have to say that all, all three of the guests this evening, um, you guys really made yourselves who you are, and it, it is admirable. And I, I'm very humbled to be in your presence because I have not made anything of my life. <laughs> um, 
however, you've also had success at everything you, you did. And I wanted to talk about you started out in a band in college yeah. that gets signed by Clive Davis the first time he sees you guys. Can you talk about that a little bit? And we're actually, before you talk about it, I apologize, we're going to play a little of the music. You guys are going to play it? Two, three, four, no. <laughs> we have an actual clip here. Sound familiar? Can you name that band, Stephen? Wow. Um, so this was my band called The Right Profile, which was named for a, um, a song that that's making noise. Here, it doesn't, it, it's kind of slow, that, that starts fast. So that's what we sounded like. And this is the early 90s or, or before then? Um, 80s. Late 80s. Late yeah. 80s. You're yeah, 21, yeah. so I just couldn't yeah, figure yeah. out. Yeah. So yeah, so, um, so, yeah uh, so we started a band in college. I went to a college called Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. It's sort of the Harvard of Boone, North Carolina. Very, it's, <laughs> and um, and I, we started a band with a bunch of guys, and it was um, a great deal of fun. I would suggest that everybody be in a band at some point in their lives because it's, um, it's not easy. Check. You know, it's kind of like being married to a <laughs> bunch of people at one time. And, uh, and so, yeah, we played. We were terrible for many years. And uh, for a couple of years, we were terrible, but we wrote our songs, and we tried really hard, and we got a record deal. And but then moved to New York, and then I quit. Right after you got the record deal. About a year after. We were in pre-production. You know what really happened is we were in pre-production on our record. So when you sign, when you're a band like we were, we were kind of a noisy, kind of punky rock country band. And um, we signed with a big label, which was probably a mistake with Arista. And what they do is they take you and they try to make you a little more pro. So they try to set you up so that you work with producers and that you try to write songs that are a little bit more commercial and try to learn how to record a little bit better. What, what is something that makes a, a song more commercial or would have made you your know, band? I mean, just basically like shorter with more hooks, essentially. And right? what are the hooks? You know, you know, a hook, like the thing that you sing. I don't. The thing that you can't get out. Like any song <laughs> that chorus. you remember. A chorus. Yeah. <laughs> Can you play a hook? Uh, let's see. Uh... See you drive around That was great. That was a fabulous hook. Clive Davis, wherever you are, if you're listening, they've got so a actually, hook for you. So we were writing all these songs, which we thought were pretty good, and they seemed to like them, but we kept having meetings with them, and they would play us other songs that were like big, big hits on the radio. They wanted you to be like them. They wanted us to be a little bit like them. And we actually made a cassette at one point of like really good hits, you know, because we, we, you know, you pride yourself on having good taste. And we made a tape of really good hits that we, was called What's Wrong With Us. And it was like, <laughs> like we, like we were a good band. We loved ourselves and we played, we were popular and stuff, but like it was just a bad fit. So anyway, so we did it for about, I, I, I stayed in it for about a year. We we're doing pre-production on our record with a producer named Jim Dickinson who had produced a bunch of, repla a couple of replacements records. Mm -hmm. It was, it was really great. And uh, he just kind of bummed me out. Like, I looked at him and I now saw Now you sound future. like a rock star. He kind of well, bummed me out. Well, yeah. It was just like, like he drank Coca-Cola and smoked dope, and that was his diet. That was his entire diet. And he didn't seem very happy doing what he was doing. And I looked into, I looked at him, and he was a kind of a, a, a hero of a lot of people, yes. including us. And I just thought, I want something a little bit different than that for my future. So I quit playing music and went to... Went back into writing. And it, right, and got your MFA at Columbia. Did. did you 
you had worked on a newspaper at home with your family. I did. Yes, I did. Um, did you always know you were a good writer? Did your did your parents encourage you? Did you become a good writer as you grew up, or were you always sort of naturally gifted? So, um, so I really I do love writing, and I, I mean I'm guessing that probably you know 90 percent of the people here consider themselves writers of some kind, just because everybody writes something these days, mm -hmm. which is great. Um, so I love it because it's the one thing that you can kind of always do. Also, if you play music, it's like you don't need anything other than your brain to constantly be doing it. Yes. So like literally, like today I was... And um, printer cartridges. And printer cartridges. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was in um, Texas this morning giving a talk, giving a Freakonomics talk. And before my talk, there was a talk by... Uh, someone selling software from IBM. And so for a half hour, you know, I was a guest of theirs. So I was sitting in the room listening before I got to talk. And in a way, it seems like it'd be incredibly mind-numbingly boring. Yes. But like as a writer, I hear any language and you can just close your eyes and you can think about what the tone is, what the language is, what's working, what's not working. When I'm watching you guys all up on stage and like on one level, you just enjoy it and you get interested in it. On the other hand, you're constantly judging, writing, judging. Yeah, so, yeah, where did, where did we, where did we fall? Where did we fall in our improvised show? Uh, notes every, after the show. Everybody was pretty good except you. I have some notes for Okay. <laughs> okay. That sounds like an honest critique. <laughs> I like your dancing though. Your dancing. Oh, thank you. I'm glad that. The, yeah. the, the one yeah. thing I have no talent for was what you cited. Um, tell me about giving talks, because I hear a lot about lectures and, and speaking engagements is how uh, people make money these days. What does it mean to make money? What does it mean to... What are you speaking about? Where are you going? Yeah, so I, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I am very grateful that this industry exists, but I think it's nuts that it does exist. So basically... <laughs> corporations or universities or whatever will pay um, money like what? for a speaker. Pay like how much? Money, how, how many dollars? Yeah. More dollars than they should. But so specifically around? More than $10. So More like, than $100. Could you get $500,000 for an hour speech? <laughs> I could not, no. But one could, could one? Uh, Bill Clinton could get, Bill Clinton could probably get $500,000 for going to Dubai and giving a lecture, yeah. Does he get to go in the nightclub? <laughs> uh, <laughs> not in that nightclub, no, 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 no. Um, but so a speaker can make a, a best time, a best-selling New York Times. Yeah, it depends on what author it like. Um, it could make about you what? know. It depends who wants to hear from what. So yeah, you could do that. I can help you do that. Okay, if that's what you're. If that's what you're after, I can help you do that. <laughs> but I was curious because you know it used to be like when you talk about music, people would make money off the merchandise, and now they make money off their concerts. And so it is similar with authors that sometimes their books are what they give away in order to. Yeah, I'll uh, be get honest with you. Gigs. I don't understand why it still exists because in this age when we get so much information delivered in so many different ways, right? And it's on demand and you can manipulate it and you can store it and you can time shift it and you can choose from one of a million different things. I don't understand why there's still a universe where at like a conference or at a university, like 500 or 1,000 people come and sit in an auditorium for an hour and listen to a person like me stand up and talk. Because nothing beats a live experience. I mean, th this show is really exciting. I'm serious. And, you know, I'm grateful for the people who listen on Sirius, and I'm grateful for the people who subscribe on iTunes, and you all can, can do that as well. But nothing beats being in the room. 
and hearing it, you get to see the facial expressions and the tone. You you can see so much more when you're up close. I don't think anything beats live so. theater. I'm, but I mean, like when I think of a speaking engagement, I think of Charles Dickens' barnstorm or Alexis de Tocqueville barnstorming America, and I think, well, that makes sense because a they were brilliant, and b there was no TV, so of course you'd right. go see them talk for an hour about birds or railroads or whatever. But like the fact that that industry still exists surprises me. But I'm I'm grateful for it. It's a great way for a writer because writing for a living is, you know, super hard. Well, and for you, you seem to not have uh, a difficulty with it. You went from New York Magazine, um, then you went to the New York Times as an editor there for, for the magazine, and from there you decided you wanted to write books after five years? I did. So um, I'll tell you the truth. Um, I probably shouldn't say this, but... Um, <laughs> So I lo- So my dad was a, a newspaper man in yes. Schenectady Gazette for the Schenectady Record and the uh, Albany Times Union and the Troy Record, these little newspapers. And honestly, he was not a very good writer. Um, and he died young when I was a kid. So mm-hmm. I, I, I don't want to besmirch his memory because I loved him very much. But he wasn't really a very talented writer. My mom was actually a really good writer. And she was you know, just a mom with eight kids, so kind of carrying the whole load. And so I grew up in this environment where newspapers were sacrosanct, and I just loved the idea. Like, my dad would come home from work every day with the pencil behind his ear and the AP, the Associated Press style book, in his pocket. And to me, like, we were a very religious family. I didn't like religion, but for me, the religion was the newspaper. And so the fact that I got hired at the New York Times eventually was, to me, like, literally like dying and and going to heaven. It was so great. And I was there for four years, and I loved it, but um, as much as I loved it, you realize that when you're an employee as a writer, mm-hmm. that um, you're kind of limited in what you can do. So I really, you know, I, I got to write some magazine pieces, which one of which turned into my first book. But I just wanted to be um, a free agent, essentially. I wanted to so write what I wanted to write and not be part of the institution. So it seems strange to leave because leaving the Times is hard because it's a great brand and people always return your phone call. But I decided I preferred to write what I wanted to write. Let's talk about branding a little bit because uh, Freakonomics and Super Freakonomics, when is Super Duper Freakonomics coming out? Um, tomorrow. No. Okay. Uh. Um, did you know that this was going to be a, a runaway bestseller? Uh, no. <laughs> no, Katie. And what does it mean to be a New York Times bestseller? It sounds very prestigious. No, New York Times bestseller. I mean, honestly, it, it sounds really good. And it, it, no, I mean, it is really good. Cause so, so think about this. There are about 250,000 books published every year, right? So the fact that anybody reads any one is kind of a, a, a freak of nature to start with because there's so many books Are you telling me I'm a freak read. of nature if I read four? No, you you're are. Free, you're a freak of nature because there's <laughs> 17,000 things on your desk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to plug everyone's stuff, including Lambic Beer. So the New York Times, I mean, do you guys want to know about the New York Times bestseller list? Yeah. I don't know if it's, um, so the fact is, is that what the New York Times has been doing for the last 30 years is splintering and splintering and splintering and splintering the list so that more books can claim it. Because if you think about it, it's fantastic advertising for the New York Times. So books that will really not be that prominent in a lot of ways, if you can make number 25 on the New York Times list of e-books that were published in the month of March, then it's a New York Times bestseller. So basically, if you look in the back of the Times book review now or online at how many New York Times bestsellers there are, there's probably like, I don't know, 300 in a given week, and that's one week, and then some stay on a long time, but it, you know they rotate around a lot. So I, I don't mean to say it's not prestigious, but it's yes. less prestigious than you might think. 
Now, that, that also sounded like something I might hear on Freakonomics. I can hear it on Freakonomics Radio. Good plug, um, good plug. Wasn't yeah. that nice? That yeah. seemed really subtle, didn't it? <laughs> you can go to Freakonomics.com to check out Freakonomics Radio. Um, you must love doing what you do, which is essentially being a social scientist. Yes. Uh, um, so, so I'm not a scientist. Like, um, so I thought I could have maybe been at one point. So I was a math and science kid to some degree, but also a music and writing kid. And then there comes that point. You can you... just say you're good at everything. No, but yeah. I wasn't. I was, uh, I was bad at bassoon. And, um, oh, sorry, excuse me. I apologize. I take that so, back. Um, but there comes a point where you kind of need to choose. You're going to be, you know, math and sciencey because that's hard. And you have to really spend a lot of time at it. And I just liked music and writing much more. So um, I don't think I have the mental, like, uh, uh, what's the word, like stamina to be a scientist, but mm -hmm. I do like it. So I like reading about the people who do the research that takes three years, but I would not have been able to do that. So yeah, so I basically exploit all the scientists who do their work, who work for universities, which we fund. So I feel good about exploiting them because all these people are publicly funded who are at all these great universities, even the private universities get a lot of government money and we never hear about their research. So what I do is I try to pick through it, especially with my, my co-author, Steve Levitt, who's, you know, right. who does more than, more than most people. And what find, do you mean he does more than most people? He does more research than most people. He's got a very, he, he's very productive is what I mean. To right, say. he also has a huge budget to have a huge staff to That's be able true. to do he that does. research. He does, he has like 20 uh, RAs working away crunching numbers. Yeah, no, it's amazing. <laughs> Having trouble with the books. Sorry about that, but they are still very good books. They do not stand on their own, but if you can hold them, <laughs> they are definitely worth reading. Um, they are fantastic. Do, do you ever get confused, and I don't mean physically, uh, but with Malcolm Gladwell, I was wondering, because he seems to be writes in a similar ilk. Not because of the Jew froze. I didn't mean it that way. Um, <laughs> now, he's not, he's not Jewish, though. He can still have a Jufro. He does have a Jufro, but it's actually more of an Afro because he's a little bit, you know, Jamaican. So, but Malcolm, I don't know if you know this about Malcolm, but Malcolm is like the most Jewish non-Jew in the world. So Malcolm actually created years ago this thing called the Judex. Do you know about the Judex? No, know about the tell Judex? me. Oh my gosh. Uh, he, this is probably not to be I thought that was about. just called the New York the Times. Radio? It's okay. It's all good. Uh, <laughs> so years ago, when I first met Malcolm, well, I, I, I like Malcolm a great deal. I think yes. he's a, a really Guys, he's good right writer. Here. What's right that, here. sorry? He's yeah, right you here. have it. What yeah, are you? He's also not I Jewish. I get mistaken for Malcolm all the time. I was Malcolm Gladwell for Halloween in 2009. In fact, we had, we had a guest on, uh, Bob Mankoff, the New, York, uh, New Yorker cartoon editor who is lovely, and he also, won, he saw you from behind and said, oh, Malcolm's here. Yeah. <laughs> where, where do you come by your hair? What ethnicity gives you your hair? Haitian. Oh, really? There you go. And do you get offended I when I call it? I do get Jufro all the time. Yeah. yeah. Are you offended or are you... Only when people won't give it up. <laughs> it happened to like, me the other week. Like he was like no, Katie. You're Jewish. Like you're Katie. totally Jewish. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, we're all children of, of the Israelites. We are. Yeah, especially today. Especially today. Yeah. So, um, but Malcolm created this really wonderful thing called a Judex, which is an index of how Jewish you are. And you don't have to be Jewish to be super high on the Judex, although it helps. So like you get different points for different experiences. Like if you went to a Jewish camp when you were a kid, you get, you know, X points. But then if you happen to know, you know, what Golda Meir's favorite record album was, you would also get That's a points. problem though. That should also, I mean, that should be serious points for another issue, a deeper issue. <laughs> Now, you grew up as a devout Catholic, and it does turn out that your family is Jewish, and you are now, uh, um, I don't want to say religious, but you certainly practice Judaism. 
I practice a little. I got, and I got good at it. Don't have to practice as much. <laughs> um, I always thought that was a funny verb to use with religion, though. It is. You practice religion because someday you'll learn how to do it. I just thought that was a strange... I also like saying someone uh, is more traditional, meaning that they follow yeah. more traditions versus saying they're more religious. Right, right. And then there's observant, which is another one. There's yes. a lot of nomenclature around religion. And then there's the spiritual nomenclature, too, which is a whole other thing. Yes. I, um, I wanted to find out, because you do write a lot about social science, and you also seem to be a, a person of faith, how you balance those oh, two things. Oh, well, no. I mean, I, I like... Um, <laughs> Should I just stick with the Jew for a no, question? No, it's okay. Uh, so I like the idea of religion a lot in a lot on a lot of dimensions, and I dislike the idea of religion a lot on a lot of dimensions. I think that um, for many, many uh, centuries, almost for millennia, um, religion served a purpose that was incredibly valuable, which was it gave kind of shape to and answers to questions that were unanswerable, which is in a way what science also does. So while I understand that there are a lot of very, very smart, pure intellectuals who are also very, very observant religiously and that they have to struggle to uh, hold those two concepts together and, and it can be a struggle. I'm not like that. So I, I don't have a kind of level of religious belief that makes it difficult for me to reconcile that with the real world or with the fact that, you know, humans die and that's the end. So um, I, I kind of wish I believed in, uh, you know, God and the afterlife in the way that my parents did. Yes. Because honestly, it makes life easier, frankly. Yeah. Um, I think that the uncertainty of what life is and what happens to it is um, much more, you know, kind of challenging. But I'm, I'm, I'm just not there. That's not a belief of mine. So I don't have a problem with the two. I, I had this theory that if we could break up into three continents, this is why I don't work in politics or anything that would actually result in this, but I think if you put all the religious people from across face on one continent, and they could, they could hate gay people and they could you know, marry their children off at age nine on Thursdays or whenever they wanted to, and then you put all the people who just love everything, like when Jessica Biel will be like, I'm tweeting about the environment, like all of those people, they would be in the most difficult area because they could handle the tsunamis. And then the rest of us <laughs> who are not really clear how we feel about burkas or Botox, we would be on a third continent. We'd be the ambivalent continent. What do you think about that theory? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we'd all be Great a lot idea. happier. It's a fantastic idea. Yeah. Let's secede. Yeah. It's a good seed. Can we stay here, though? Can yes. I stay in New York? Well, that's right. I, feel, I thought maybe you could spearhead that movement. <laughs> I just wanted to put it out there. I would love to have you back on the podcast because it is such a, a joy to have you on. I love listening to you um, on Freakonomics on NPR. And um, I would love to have you back. And we're going to have the celebratory award ceremony right now. And I just want to give a, a warm, warm round of applause for the incredibly talented and very funny and lovely Stephen Dubner. Thank you so, so much. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can go to employeeofthemonthshow.com and that will take you to SoundCloud where you can download individual episodes or you can subscribe to the entire series for free on iTunes. Highly recommended. I want to give a very special thanks to Todd Rosenberg, Ian Mazoff, Damian Strange, and UCB Theater for making this possible. And most especially to you listening. I really, really appreciate it. 
Um, that's it. Thanks so much. Okay, have a wonderful day. Eat lots of vegetables and make sure to get some exercise for both of us. Okay, bye.